Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! If Jesus were to be born today, he would be born under the rubble in Gaza. When we glorify pride and richness, Jesus is under the rubble. Stop the genocide in Gaza. That was the Christmas message of the Palestinian pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Bethlehem, where Christmas festivities were canceled to mourn the more than 20,000 Palestinians killed in Gaza. We'll speak to the Reverend Munther Isaac and air his Christmas sermon, Christ in the Rubble. Then a growing number of U.S. labor unions, including the American Postal Workers Union and the United Auto Workers are calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. We cannot bomb our way to peace. That's right. That's right. No. The only path forward is to build peace and social justice. It's through a ceasefire. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to step up attacks on the Gaza Strip after a weekend of violence that left hundreds of Palestinians dead. On Friday, 90 people were killed when Israel bombed two homes in Gaza City. Seventy-six of the dead were members of one family. They include Isam al-Mugrabi, who worked as a United Nations Development Program official for three decades. He was killed along with his wife and five of their children. On Sunday, at least 106 Palestinians were killed in a single Israeli airstrike on the Maghazi refugee camp in Gaza. This is Ibrahim Youssef, a camp resident who searched for his wife and four children after the attack buried them under the rubble. My wife and children are still trapped inside. I only managed to uncover my eldest son, Mohammed. How will I bury them while they remain under the rubble? How can I locate and lay them to rest? How will I confirm that my children are here? Where did they go and what happened to them? What fault did they have? Why did this happen to them? It's not their fault. The world watches as we die and are being slaughtered. The Palestine Red Crescent Society says an Israeli artillery attack on its headquarters in Khan Yunus left several people injured. Meanwhile, human rights groups are demanding an investigation after video reportedly taken by an Israeli photojournalist appeared to show hundreds of Palestinian civilians, including children, held by Israeli soldiers in a Gaza stadium at gunpoint, stripped to their underwear, bound and forced to sit on open ground. Israel's military said Sunday it had recovered the bodies of five Israeli hostages from a network of underground tunnels under the Jabalia refugee camp near Gaza City. Israeli officials did not say how the captives had died. On Monday, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu visited the Gaza Strip for the second time since Israel began its assault in October. He told troops, quote, this will be a long battle and it isn't close to finish, unquote. 
Later on Monday, family members of hostages held a protest inside Israel's parliament as Netanyahu delivered a speech at a special session of the Knesset. They were demanding Israel's government prioritize the release of the 130 hostages still held in Gaza. The protesters chanted, no time now, and held signs reading, what if it was your brother and what if it was your father? On Friday, the United Nations Security Council passed a resolution calling for more humanitarian aid to enter Gaza. Passage came only after the United States spent days threatening to veto the original draft, which called for a, quote, urgent and sustainable cessation of hostilities, unquote. Instead, the watered-down resolution passed Friday called for steps to, quote, create the conditions for a sustainable cessation of hostilities, unquote. Thirteen members voted in favor, while the United States abstained. In response, Amnesty International Secretary General Agnes Calamar said, quote, nothing short of an immediate ceasefire is enough to alleviate the mass civilian suffering we're witnessing. It's disgraceful that the U.S. was able to stall and use the threat of its veto power to force the U.N. Security Council to weaken a much-needed call for an immediate end to attacks by all parties, unquote. The Pentagon says it carried out three strikes on Iraqi territory early today at President Biden's direction in response to a drone attack on an airbase in Erbil that wounded three U.S. service members, one critically. Iraq's government said the U.S. attacks killed one member of the Iraqi security forces and wounded 18 people, including civilians. It condemned the Pentagon's, quote, unacceptable attack on Iraqi sovereignty, unquote. Meanwhile, Turkey's military launched airstrikes in northern Iraq and Syria over the weekend, targeting bases, shelters and oil facilities operated by the Kurdish PKK militia. The attacks came after the Turkish defense ministry said 12 of its soldiers were killed in northern Iraq in battles with PKK fighters. Elsewhere, an Israeli airstrike on northern Syria Monday killed Syed Razi Mousavi, a senior advisor in Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps responsible for coordinating Iran's military alliance with Syria. Iran's foreign ministry condemned the attack, saying, quote, Iran reserves the right to take necessary measures to respond to this action at the appropriate time and place, unquote. At the Vatican, Pope Francis condemned what he called the feudal logic of war during his annual Christmas Day message. Speaking from the balcony of St. Peter's Basilica, the Pope repeated his call on Hamas to release the 130 hostages held in Gaza and demanded Israel halt its unrelenting attacks. I plead for an end to the military operations with their appalling harvest of innocent civilian victims and call for a solution to the desperate humanitarian situation by an opening to the provision of humanitarian aid. May there be an end to the fueling of violence and hatred. Pope Francis's remarks came as Palestinian Christians in Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus Christ, canceled Christmas celebrations to mourn the more than 20,000 people killed in the Gaza Strip since October. After headlines, we'll speak with Reverend Munther Isaac, who delivered his Christmas sermon Saturday at the Evangelical Lutheran Christmas Church in Bethlehem, calling it Christ in the Rubble.
Ukraine's military claims it has destroyed a Russian naval landing ship at a base in Russian-occupied Crimea and says it shot down five Russian fighter jets over recent days. This comes after Russia's military claimed it seized the front-line town of Marienka in eastern Ukraine. On Monday, Ukraine celebrated Christmas on December 25th for the first time ever, breaking from a Russian Orthodox Church tradition of celebrating the holiday in early January in alignment with the Julian calendar. In Kyiv, Ukraine's parliament is debating a bill that would lower the age of military conscription from 27 to 25, after the military said it needed up to half a million additional soldiers. Meanwhile, The New York Times reports Russian President Vladimir Putin has been signaling through intermediaries since at least September that he's open to a ceasefire that freezes fighting in Ukraine along the current lines. Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has been located at a penal colony in northern Siberia two weeks after his supporters and family lost contact with him when he disappeared from a prison camp outside Moscow. Spokesperson for Navalny says he resurfaced Monday at a penal colony nicknamed Polar Wolf in the town of Harp in the Arctic Circle. We know for sure that uh, in this new colony, uh, his conditions would be even worse than they were before. But the thing is that this colony is very distant. It is very difficult to access it. And uh, for lawyers, it will be very, very difficult uh, to go there and to see Alexei. Protests are continuing in Argentina after newly inaugurated President Javier Milei introduced sweeping economic shock measures that has caused prices to roar, to soar. Milei is a far-right libertarian. Last week, he ordered a major deregulation of the national economy. Protesters have taken to the street despite threats from Milei to cut off government benefits to anyone who blocks streets. In Pakistan, officials in Lahore have closed schools, markets and parks after the city of 11 million people recorded some of the worst air quality in the world. On Saturday, the government turned to cloud seeding technology in an unsuccessful attempt to use artificial rains to drive down air pollution. Local environmentalists blame poor government planning for the acrid air in Lahore, which has lost three quarters of its tree canopy in recent decades. This weather is causing eye and throat irritation to everyone. It is damaging our health. This smog has been happening for the last five, seven years. It did not happen before that. This is related to climate change. We ought to plant trees and keep our atmosphere clean. And here in the United States, a Colorado jury has found paramedics Jeremy Cooper and Peter Sichuniak guilty of criminally negligent homicide and the 2019 death of Elijah McClain, a 23-year-old black man who was walking home from the store when he was tackled by police, placed in a carotid hold, and later injected with ketamine. An expert witness testified there was no reason for the paramedics to give McClain the powerful sedative. They were also found to have failed to provide medical care to McClain after they drugged him and he lay handcuffed and unconscious on the ground. He suffered a heart attack in the ambulance and died in the hospital three days later. This was the last of three trials over the killing of Elijah McClain after one officer was convicted of criminally negligent homicide and assault and two other officers were acquitted. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Hi, Juan. 
We begin today's show in the occupied West Bank, in the city of Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus. City and church leaders canceled all Christmas festivities in the Holy Land this year to mourn the more than 20,000 Palestinians killed in Gaza. The landmark Evangelical Lutheran Christmas Church in Bethlehem created a nativity scene with the figure of baby Jesus in a kaffiyeh surrounded by rubble. Later in the show, we'll be joined by the church's pastor, the Reverend Luther Isaac. But we begin by airing his Christmas sermon, which he delivered on Saturday. Christ under the rubble. We are angry. We are broken. This should have been a time of joy. Instead, we are mourning. We are fearful. More than 20,000 killed. Thousands are still under the rubble. Close to 9,000 children killed in the most brutal ways. Day after day, 1.9 million displaced, hundreds of thousands of homes destroyed. Gaza, as we know it, no longer exists. This is an annihilation. This is a genocide. The world is watching. Churches are watching. The people of Gaza are sending live images of their own execution. Maybe the world cares. But it goes on. We are asking here, could this be our fate in Bethlehem, in Ramallah, in Jenin? Is this our destiny too? We are tormented by the silence of the world. Leaders of the so-called free lined up one after the other to give the green light for this genocide against a captive population. They gave the cover. Not only did they make sure to pay the bill in advance, they veiled the truth and context, providing the political cover. And yet another layer has been added, the theological cover, with the Western Church stepping into the spotlight. Our dear friends in South Africa taught us the concept of the state theology, defined as theology, the theological justification of the status quo with its racism, capitalism, and totalitarianism. It does so by misusing theological concepts and biblical texts for its own political purposes. Here in Palestine, the Bible is weaponized against us our very own sacred text. In our terminology in Palestine, we speak of the empire. Here we confront the theology of empire, a disguise for superiority, supremacy, chosenness, and entitlement. It is sometimes given a nice cover using words like mission and evangelism, fulfillment of prophecy, and spreading freedom and liberty. The theology of the empire becomes a powerful tool to mask oppression under the clock of divine sanction. It speaks of land without 
people. It divides people into us and them. It dehumanizes and demonizes. The concept of land without people, again. Even though they knew too well that the land had people, and not just any people, a very special people. Theology of the empire calls for emptying Gaza. Just like it called for the ethnic cleansing in 1948, a miracle or a divine miracle as they called it. It calls for us Palestinians now to go to Egypt, maybe Jordan. Why not just the sea? I think of the words of the disciples to Jesus when he was about to enter Samaria. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They said of the Samaritans. This is the theology of the empire. This is what they're saying about us today. This war, this war has confirmed to us that the world does not see us as equal. Maybe it's the color of our skins. Maybe it is because we are on the wrong side of a political equation. Even our kingship in Christ did not shield us. So they say, if it takes killing 100 Palestinians to get a single Hamas militant, then so be it. We are not humans in their eyes. But in God's eyes, no one can tell us that. The hypocrisy and racism of the Western world is transparent and appalling. They always take the word of Palestinians with suspicion and qualification. No, we're not treated equally. Yet on the other side, despite a clear track record of misinformation, lies, their words are almost always deemed infallible. To our European friends, I never ever want to hear you lecture us on human rights or international law again. And I mean this. We are not white, I guess. It does not apply to us according to your own logic. In this war, the many Christians in the Western world made sure the empire has the theology needed. It is their self-defense, we were told. And I continue to ask, how is the killing of 9,000 children self-defense? How is the displacement of 1.9 million Palestinians self-defense? In the shadow of the empire, they turned the colonizer into the victim and the colonized into the aggressor. Have we forgotten, have we forgotten that the state they talked to, that that state was built on the ruins of the towns and villages of those very same Gazans? Have they forgot that? We are outraged by the complicity of the church. Let it be clear, friends. Silence is complicity. And empty calls for peace without a ceasefire and end to occupation, and the shallow words of empathy without direct action, all under the banner of complicity. So here is my message. Gaza today has become the moral compass of the world. Gaza was hell before October 7th. And the world was silent. 
Should we be surprised at their silence now? If you are not appalled by what is happening in Gaza, if you are not shaken to your core, there is something wrong with your humanity. And if we as Christians are not outraged by the genocide, by the weaponization of the Bible to justify it, there is something wrong with our Christian witness and we are compromising the credibility of our gospel message. If you fail to call this a genocide, it is on you. It is a sin and a darkness you willingly embrace. Some have not even called for a ceasefire. I'm talking about churches. I feel sorry for you. We will be okay. Despite the immense blow we have endured, we the Palestinians will recover. We will rise. We will stand up again from the midst of destruction as we have always done as Palestinians. Although this is by far maybe the biggest blow we have received in a long time. But we will be okay. But for those who are complicit, I feel sorry for you. Will you ever recover from this? Your charity and your words of shock after the genocide won't make a difference. And I know these words of shocks are coming. And I know people will give generously for charity. But your words won't make a difference. Words of regret won't suffice for you. And let me say it. We will not accept your apology after the genocide. What has been done has been done. I want you to look at the mirror and ask, where was I when Gaza was going through a genocide? In these last two months, the Psalms of Lament have become a precious companion to us. We cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken Gaza? Why do you hide your face from Gaza? In our pain, anguish, and lament, we have searched for God and found him under the rubble in Gaza. Jesus himself became the victim of the very same violence of the empire when he was in our land. He was tortured, crucified. He bled out as others watched. He was killed and cried out in pain, My God, where are you? In Gaza today, God is under the rubble. And in this Christmas season, as we search for Jesus... He is not to be found in the side of Rome, but our side of the wall. He is in a cave with a simple family, an occupied family. He is vulnerable. Barely and miraculously surviving a massacre himself. He is among the refugees, among a refugee family. This is where Jesus is to be found today. If Jesus were to be born today, he would be born under the rubble in Gaza. When we glorify pride and richness, Jesus is under the rubble. When we rely on power, might, and weapons, Jesus is under the rubble. 
When we justify, rationalize, and theologize the bombing of children, Jesus is under the rubble. Jesus is under the rubble. This is his manger. He is at home with the marginalized, the suffering, the oppressed, and the displaced. This is his manger. And I have been looking and contemplating on this iconic image. God with us precisely in this way. This is the incarnation. Messy, bloody, poverty. This is the incarnation. And this child is our hope and inspiration. We look and see him in every child killed and pulled from under the rubble. While the world continues to reject the children of Gaza, Jesus says, just as you did to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. You did it to me. Jesus not only calls them his own, he is them. He is the children of Gaza. We look at the Holy Family and see them in every family displaced and wandering, now homeless in despair. While the world discusses the fate of the people of Gaza as if they are unwanted boxes in a garage, God in the Christmas narrative shares their fate. He walks with them and calls them his own. So this manger is about resilience. It's about sumud. And the resilience of Jesus is, his, is in his meekness, is in his weakness, is in his vulnerability. The majesty of the incarnation lies in its solidarity with the marginalized. Resilience because this is the very same child who rose up from the midst of pain, destruction, darkness, and death to challenge empires, to speak truth to power, and deliver an everlasting victory over death and darkness. This very same child accomplished this. This is Christmas today in Palestine. And this is the Christmas message. Christmas is not about Santas. It's not about trees and gifts and lights. My goodness, how we have twisted the meaning of Christmas. How we have commercialized Christmas. I was, by the way, in the USA last month, the first Monday after Thanksgiving, and I was amazed by the amount of Christmas decorations and lights and all the commercial goods. And I couldn't help but think. They send us bombs, while celebrating Christmas in their lands. They sing about the Prince of Peace in their land, while playing the drum of war in our land. Christmas in Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus, is this manger. This is our message to the world today. It is a gospel message. It is a true and authentic Christmas message about the God who did not stay silent, but said his word, and his word was Jesus. Born among the occupied and marginalized, he is in solidarity with us in our pain and brokenness. 
This message is our message to the world today. And it is simply this. This genocide must stop now. Why don't we repeat it? Stop this genocide now. Can you say it with me? Stop this genocide. Let's say it one more time. Stop this genocide. This is our call. This is our plea. This is our prayer. Hear, O God. Amen. The Reverend Munther Isaac, the pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Christmas Church in Bethlehem, delivering his Christmas sermon on Saturday. He titled it, Christ in the Rubble. Coming up, Reverend Isaac will join us from Bethlehem and occupied West Bank. Stay with us. Song to the World, a version of the popular Christmas song, Little Drummer Boy, sung by the Ramallah Friends School in the West Bank. The three Palestinian college students who were shot in Burlington, Vermont last month, are graduates of the Ramallah Friends School and met there in the first grade. The three students who were shot now go to Haverford, Trinity, and Brown in the United States. In the video shared by the school, current students sing in Arabic with English subtitles. The school wrote, Our hearts come together in prayer for the safety of the children in Gaza. May our shared prayers echo for peace and justice, weaving a tapestry of hope that goes beyond borders, embracing the shared humanity we all hold dear. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Christ in the Rubble. That was the name of the Christmas sermon we just heard from the Reverend Mother Isaac, the pastor of the landmark Evangelical Lutheran Christmas Church in Bethlehem. Reverend Isaac's church gained international attention for creating a nativity scene with the figure of baby Jesus in a keffiyeh surrounded by rubble. Over the Christmas weekend, Israel carried out raids across the West Bank, including in Bethlehem, in Jenin, Nablus, Jericho, and Ramallah. The Reverend Muntha Isaac joins us from Bethlehem, where Christmas festivities were canceled this year to mourn the more than 20,000 Palestinians killed in Gaza. Reverend, welcome to Democracy Now! Um, I wish I could 
wish you happy holidays, um, but they are far from happy this year. I'm wondering if you can talk about the message we just heard. It was clear it was not just for your congregation in Bethlehem, not just for the occupied territories in Israel, but you were really sending out a message to the world, um, and particularly talking about the United States. Why you feel where we are talking to you from, where you just recently were, is so important when it comes to the almost 21,000 Palestinians dead since October 7th, since the Hamas attack on Israel. Yeah, good morning, and thank you for having me. Um, this was a service we held uh, the day before Christmas for Gaza, and it was Jesus under the rubble from Bethlehem to the world. And as I said in the introduction, we are broken uh, as Palestinians by the magnitude, the horrific uh, killing of our people in Gaza. But I also wanted to speak not just for the people of Gaza, for all Palestinians who are appalled by the silence of the world and the dehumanization that has been taking place uh, of the Palestinian people, especially those uh, in Gaza. The dehumanization that allows us such atrocities to take place with the world's watching and with Gazans themselves filming their own execution. We are really tired and, 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 and troubled from seeing day after day after day images of children and, and families being pulled from under the rubble. We can't understand how the world is okay with this. And, and as a pastor who regularly speaks with uh, churches around the world, uh, I can't understand how we can preach the gospel uh, of love and justice while ignoring and in some cases justifying what is happening in Gaza. It's, it's unfathomable, unfathomable to me uh, and to many Palestinians. And as such, I felt the need to deliver such uh, a message uh, with very direct and clear language. This is not the time for uh, soft diplomacy, especially with the genocide still happening day after day after day. Um, and I'm grateful for those who enabled us to uh, broadcast this service to the world. And I'm grateful that it is reaching. It's not that we're going to stop what's happening in Gaza. I wish we could. We're, we're trying all we can through messaging and lobbying. But I hope that people will feel the weight of responsibility that they have uh, and I'm talking about not just Western government, many churches, they have enabled uh, what is happening right now in Gaza. And I felt we need to send this message. Well, Reverend Isaac, uh, you mentioned that you were recently in the United States. Uh, you went to Washington, D.C. with a group of Christian leaders from Bethlehem. You, you spoke to congressional leaders uh, and you also delivered a, a message to the White House, a letter to the White House. What was your sense of how the political leaders in this country are regarding what's going on there right now uh, in um, uh, in the is with the Israeli attacks uh, on Gaza? We received a mixed reaction, um, but I left there really depressed. And clearly, back then we saw the intention and that uh, as if everybody has given to the idea that this war is going to last for long. Um, I left with several impressions. Uh, a lot of it has to do with how uh, 
uh, unwilling to even have a, a good conversation. Some uh, congressmen, I'm talking about their staff, are willing, uh, you know, to do. I mean, you share from the heart of our suffering and pain, and then you just get the response, well, congressman so-and-so or senator so-and-so has made it clear that this war wants to continue. And they speak with so much distance from the fact and also uh, almost with lack of empathy whatsoever. Um, when we met in the State Department and the White House, to be honest, you know, they understand the, the details of what's happening. Uh, when I told them that this war is definitely not bringing any results other than killing innocent people, you know, they seem to agree, but they seem to have, as I said, given to the idea that uh, this war must continue. And I was, you know, I challenged them. How do you allow such a government in Israel, such leaders to drive you into committing a genocide. I, ca I can't understand it, especially with some of the quote-unquote ideals many of these American politicians keep bragging about or calling for. Yet when it comes to the Palestinians, it seems no one is uh, willing to extend these human rights and international uh, you know, principles to us. And could could you lay out uh, the significance of Palestine for the Christian faith uh, it's not only the birthplace of Christianity, but also the site of several key events described in the Old and New Testaments. Yeah, Palestine is where it all started. And uh, in addition to the uh, sites themselves that church fathers have called uh, the fifth gospel, meaning that the geography uh, uh, speaks about what happened here over the years, I think we have to realize that Palestine is also uh, hosts uh, the oldest Christian tradition in the world. Christianity started here and never ceased to exist here. So not only is this the land where it all started, this is the land that continued to witness nonstop uh, and give the Christian uh, message. We always emphasize that Palestine without the witness of its people is uh, means nothing. Uh, and I hate to see Palestine one day turn into a museum of holy sites for these Western pilgrims who come and visit only interested in certain sites that relate to the uh, scriptures without acknowledging the presence of people, without acknowledging the presence of a church that has long carried um, the Christian witness in Palestine for 2,000 years. But sadly, uh, we continue to be ignored. And I think even Palestine, apart from being uh, the destination for pilgrimage, uh, is somehow, uh, uh, you know, people view the biblical land as somehow a mythical land, uh, a land from another universe. You know, we just celebrated Christmas and uh, millions sang about Bethlehem and uh, read about Bethlehem. I wonder if they know that Bethlehem is a real city in Palestine with people with a long cry for justice. Uh, but it seems that, you know, for some reason, people don't make that connection and are not as much concerned with the plights of Palestinian Christians and even Middle Eastern Christians. Reverend Isaac, um, can you describe for us um, half of our audience is television. They see the nativity scene. Half is radio. They cannot see it. 
Can you describe the nativity scene um, that was right next to you as you delivered your Christmas sermon? Describe it in detail and why you chose to do this this year as Christmas celebrations were canceled in your city of Bethlehem. So we created this nativity scene uh, earlier this month um, in the beginning of the Advent season uh, from uh, rubble, uh, bricks that resemble a destroyed house. So it's a pile of bricks that resemble a house that was bombed. And on top of it, surrounded by bricks, we had baby Jesus. And uh, the characters in the usually uh, in the manger, the shepherds and the magis, are all outside surrounding the rubble, watching in as if they're looking for any sign of life, looking for Jesus. And we're sending a message that Jesus is under uh, the rubble. We created it because this is what Christmas looks like in Palestine today. Uh, but we created it because, uh, you know, there is a strong message we wanted to send from it, which is that in a time when the world continues to justify and rationalize the killing of our children, we see the image of Jesus in every child pulled from under the rubble. Uh, these have been very difficult times for us as Palestinians. We ask difficult questions, including where is God in the midst of suffering? And I have been saying God is under the rubble. God is with those who suffer. God suffers with us. So with the Christmas coming and with Christmas coming, the connection to me was natural. Jesus as a baby who survived a massacre, Jesus as a baby who became a refugee with his family to Egypt, identifies with us in our suffering. He was born with the marginalized. So the connection was natural and we created this manger to send a message to the world. This is what Christmas means to us as Palestinians. Uh, it was a message to our people. Uh, I know that everyone saw it in the international media and it resonated with, I mean, it created maybe a shock to many, but for the Palestinians, it sent a very strong message. And many, many Palestinians reached out to us, to our church and to myself, thanking us for explaining the true meaning of Christmas, for sending a message of comfort and hope in the midst of very, very difficult uh, times. And so I spoke even in my sermon that this manger somehow resembles our resilience as Palestinians. From the midst of destruction, we will rise. Uh, and I'm convinced of that. It sounds so dark right now. We're traumatized. I mean, honestly, we're traumatized as a people. And I can't even think of the people of Gaza. But I know that we will rise. And uh, I'm pleased that this manger was able to bring a small sense of hope our people, but that it also send a powerful message to the world about reality in Palestine. This is what Christmas is in Palestine. Uh, displaced families, destroyed homes, and children under the rubble. Reverend Munther Isaac, I want to thank you for being with us. Palestinian Christian theologian, pastor at the Evangelical Lutheran Christmas Church in Bethlehem. He titled his Christmas sermon, Christ in the Rubble, a Liturgy of Lament. When we come back, we look at how a growing number of U.S. labor unions are calling for a Gaza ceasefire. Back in a minute. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see the light above thy deep and dreamless sleep. 
the silent stars go by yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee a little town of Bethlehem performed by Nat King Cole. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We look now at the growing pressure from the U.S. labor movement on President Biden to demand a ceasefire in the U.S.-backed Israeli assault on Gaza. Unions helped organize a march to APEC headquarters here in New York last Thursday that called on lawmakers to stop taking campaign money from pro-Israel lobbyists. This is United Auto Workers President Sean Fain speaking alongside progressive Congress members at a news conference Thursday on Capitol Hill. We cannot bomb our way to peace. The only path forward is to build peace and social justice. It's through a ceasefire. As union members, we know we must fight for all workers and suffering people around the world. We must fight for humanity. That means we must restore people's basic rights and allow water, food, fuel, humanitarian aid to enter Gaza. For more, we're joined by two guests in Washington. Bill Fletcher, longtime trade unionist, co-founder of the Ukrainian Solidarity Network, member of the editorial board of The Nation, where his latest piece is headlined Gaza, Biden and a path forward. And in Chicago, we're joined by Jeff Shirky. He is a labor historian, journalist, union activist and assistant professor at the School of Labor Studies, uh, SUNY Empire State University in New York City. His latest piece for Jewish Currents is The Problem of the Unionized War Machine. His recent articles for In These Times, the AFL-CIO squashed a council ceasefire resolution. What does it say about labor right now? And the labor movement's history of backing Israel and the changing climate amidst the war on Gaza, which was also published in Jacobin magazine under the headline, U.S. Labor Should Act Boldly and Choose Solidarity with Palestine. Welcome you both to Democracy Now! Jeff Shirky, let's begin with you. If you can just go through the labor unions, everyone from the United Postal Workers Union to the powerhouse UAW, United Auto Workers, um, and talk about the Gaza activism that we're seeing today. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, since October, scores and scores of unions and labor bodies at the local, state, regional, and national level have been calling for a ceasefire. There's a uh, statement, uh, a U.S. labor movement call for a ceasefire. It also includes a call for restoring food, fuel, water, electricity to Gaza, and a call for the release of all hostages. That was started uh, around October 17th by the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers, UE, which is a relatively small um, but historically very progressive trade union here in the United States. So UE, along with United Food and Commercial Commercial Workers, UFCW Local 3000, started this petition with the ceasefire call and asked or called on other unions 
to uh, sign on to it. And so far, as I said, I've lost count how many um, have signed on to it. And other unions have also uh, issued their own statements and resolutions calling for a ceasefire. So these are unions of uh, teachers and academic workers, healthcare workers, um, roofers, painters, dock workers. Can you list some um, of the un- can you list some of the unions yeah, like the UAW? Yeah, yeah. I'm sir, about? Sir, certainly the um, so I mentioned the United Electrical Workers, the American Postal Workers Union, United Auto Workers, 1199 SEIU, which is the largest healthcare union in the country, the Na- National Nurses United. Uh, International Longshore and Warehouse Union, Local 10, um, uh, the Chicago Teachers Union, the Boston Teachers Union, uh, several locals of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, um, and, and and on and on. It would, it would, it would take a long time. But th- these represent millions of, of working people across the country, and I think it's an illustration of the fact um, that, as the polls consistently show, major- a majority of people in this country support calls for a ceasefire. And when you're talking about a majority of people in this country, you're talking about working class people. And when they have organizations like unions that represent their voices, that give them uh, a democratic say, then um, you're going to see those organizations, those unions um, express um, the the stance of working class people, which in this case is a a call for an end to the slaughter and for uh, for a ceasefire. Um, Yeah. but, uh, Jeff, we still have a considerable number of the national unions, obviously, who are not taking that stand. And, and you've, uh, you've explained in prior articles the, uh, the role of the AFL-CIO uh, in, in, for decades and decades, basically supporting U.S. imperial projects around the world. And uh, you've written about the, uh, this guy, Jay Lovestone, who was a former communist who played a major role in getting the AFL-CIO united with CIA and imperialist ventures. I'm wondering if you could talk about some of some of our younger viewers and listeners who may not never have heard of Jay Lovestone. Yeah, there's there is a um, really kind of um, unfortunate and ugly history of the U.S. U.S. labor officialdom, including the AFL-CIO in particular, working hand in hand with the U.S. foreign policy apparatus, especially during the Cold War decades, roughly 1940s to 1990s. Um, working with the State Department, the CIA, uh, and other entities of the federal government to try to undermine unions in foreign countries, particularly more left-wing unions, anti-imperialist unions, and divide labor movements. Jay Lovestone, for many years, was a um, the, the director of the AFL-CIO's International Affairs Department. He was um, a CIA agent as well. Um, there's a there's a long history to that, but but particularly when it comes to Israel and Zionism, there's there's a long history there as well of U.S. labor officialdom um, being one of the strongest supporters in the U.S. of of the Zionist movement going back as far as 1917, and being strongly supportive of the state of Israel, not just uh, vocal support or political support, but also material support with millions and millions of dollars from U.S. unions donated to uh, first early Zionist settlements before the state of Israel and then to the state of Israel for housing, for health care clinics, for um, uh, community centers, sports stadiums. So throughout the 1950s and 60s and the early decades of Israel, many of these kinds of public facilities bore the names of famous U.S. labor leaders 
like Walter Ruther, George Meany, um, Jimmy Hoffa, you know, orphanages and sports stadiums named after U.S. labor leaders because of this material support. There's also State of Israel bonds, which U.S. unions have been among the most the top purchasers of for for many decades. These are this is money that U.S. unions put um, you know dues or pension money or uh, health care fund money from unions directly invested into the State of Israel for infrastructure well, well, uh, Jeff, projects. Specifically so, about those Israeli bonds, I remember back in the 1980s attending a fundraiser uh, of the Philadelphia unions for the Israeli Labor Federation, and one of the leaders got up there at that time and said, we invest millions of dollars in Israeli bonds from our pension fund. My members sometimes tell me that they don't give us a good a return, but we, I tell them this is the right thing to do. Uh, so many union members do not know that their funds were being invested in, in Israeli bonds for decades. Yes, and there, but there has been um, also a kind of slow but sure, slowly but surely a movement from the rank and file over many decades to try to push back against that. Going back 50 years ago in 1973, uh, Arab American auto workers in Detroit, who were members of the United Auto Workers, uh, staged a wildcat strike at the Dodge Main Assembly Plant to protest the UAW leadership's decision to purchase uh, $785,000 in State of Israel bonds and called on UAW leaders to to divest. And so over the last 20 years or so, um, you know, there's been the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement led by uh, Palestinians, including Palestinian trade unions. Um, and some unions in the U.S. have tried to um, endorse BDS and talk about how uh, you, their own funds, their own dues and pension funds, how they're invested in, in Israel. So that's one of the significant things I think about with the UAW's recent call for a ceasefire. They also um, created a new working group called the Divestment and Just Transition Working Group that's going to look into the UAW's own investments in Israel and talk about potentially divesting, as well as talking about, when they say just transition, they're talking about in the uh, arms industry, because the UAW represents thousands of workers in uh, U.S. weapons factories, weapons that are being sent to Israel. And if we want to talk about shutting down those factories, we also have to talk about what happens to the people who work there, uh, who are union members. And so just transition is similar to the same idea of what happens to fossil fuel workers as we transition to a green economy, making sure, and this goes back to an earlier, you know, in the 1970s, 80s, calls for economic conversion or conversion from a wartime economy to peacetime economy. So the fact that the UAW, the UAW's new leadership under President Sean Fain has committed to, to trying to work towards these goals, I think, is probably even more significant than the calls for a ceasefire, because after all, ceasefire is sort of the bare minimum here. Uh, Bill Fletcher, I wanted to bring you into this conversation. Uh, you're on the editorial board of The Nation, your new piece, Gaza, Biden and a Path Forward. And you wrote for In These Times, the fascist movement's biggest threat, labor unions. Um, can you talk about what you mean? Amy Wan, thank you for having me on the program. Can I I just want to say one thing before getting into that question. The, the U.S. trade union movement has always been divided on international affairs. I mean, going back to the Spanish-American War, uh, going to the Spanish Civil War, going to uh, the Vietnam War, Central America, South Africa, 
what has been a, a generally consolidated position going to your point, Juan, is at the, at the level of the national leadership of the AFL-CIO and most unions, they've been largely in lockstep with U.S. foreign policy, but not always. Now, what's different is that when it comes to Israel and Palestine, up until fairly recently, at the national level, there's almost no discussion about alternative views as opposed to supporting uh, Israel. And so that's what's changing, which is really, really important to emphasize. And, and one of the things, Amy, to your question, is that there is great fear within the union movement about what's going to happen in November 2024. And and what will happen in terms of whether Biden or whoever gets uh, gets elected. And and so the with the October 7th, the Hamas attack and the Israeli genocide following that, the union movement has been in a tailspin as to how to respond. And part of that response is to go back to its general position of supporting anything that Israel does. Another position is that of silence. And then the growing position, which we're now seeing, that's represented by the APWU, UAW, NNU and others, is to take a critical position on the, on the views on the, on the policy of the United States and of Israel. And that's where we should have hope. And what about President Biden, Bill Fletcher? I mean, you have this really interesting discussion going on right now as we move into the presidential election year. Look at Michigan. Um, huge Arab American community and Dearborn, you know, United Auto Workers, so powerful. Um, and it looks like, to say the least, he is, though, one of the most um, powerful supporters of unions when it comes to presidents. Our American community yes. is enraged, the Palestinian community of Michigan. Well, and they should be. And the rest of us should be. I mean, as you said, I mean, uh, Biden is probably the most pro-labor uh, president that we've had in, in decades. But the thing about his response to the, the uh, to Gaza, which is one of the reasons I think that he really should step aside, and and there should be a, a, another candidate for president on the on a Democratic slate, is that Biden is fundamentally a Zionist. He believes this stuff. I mean, this is not just the sort of the the kind of opportunism that we saw among uh, with Obama, who I don't actually don't think was a Zionist, but for very opportunistic reasons was prepared to align himself with uh, supporting Israel on so many things. I think Biden actually believes this, and and his embrace of Netanyahu this defies politics, it defies reality, it defies humanity. That he cannot look at what's happening and even at the level of pragmatic politics say, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, let's reevaluate this situation. And at best con uh, calls for uh, greater uh, humanitarian aid to the Palestinians. This is this is unacceptable. And I think that's why it's really important to right now hammer the administration around Palestine. We're going we'll to have to leave it there, November. Bill, but we're going to continue the discussion and post online at democracynow.org. Bill Fletcher, longtime trade unionist member of the nation's editorial board, and Jeff Shirky, labor historian, journalist, will link to all of your pieces. A very happy birthday to Narmeen Maria. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.